I need to begin today by saying thank you. Today marks the 13th week that we have been worshiping exclusively via live stream. If you had told me back in February that this would happen, I would have thought you had lost your mind. But alas, it has happened. And because of the faithful leadership of our church board, our elders, our deacons, we have carried on in remarkable fashion as a congregation. I am deeply appreciative to our musicians and scripture readers for continuing to lead us in worship. And my heart overflows with gratitude to our entire church staff, which has worked not only tirelessly, but creatively and passionately to empower us to continue to experience the inextinguishable spirit of God's love throughout this challenging season. On behalf of the whole congregation, I say thank you to our staff and our clergy. Thank you. God is not done with us yet. Today's scripture lesson takes place on the mountain of God called Mount Horeb, which means wasteland. So it seemed like a good place to begin our series, Ancient Wisdom, for a time like this. There are so many ways in which this moment of history we are living through feels like a wasteland. COVID has claimed almost 400,000 lives globally, and roughly a third of those are here in our own country. Protest against racial injustice and demands to end the brutality against those with black and brown skin have erupted in more than 140 cities across our nation, with thousands gathering nightly only two miles from where I preach. The economic devastation from a three-month shutdown has impacted millions of families, including many in our own church community, and hardly a one of us has not been shaped by the twin sisters of this pandemic, loneliness and uncertainty. Even introverts among us need time with other humans, people to hug us and pat us on the back and sing a song with us. And those of us who get energy from a crowd or who enjoy getting together for a party with a few friends in a bar, well, those of us who are that kind of person, we long to reconnect. A recent article said that the new normal for the foreseeable future is uncertainty, which leaves many of us uneasy, especially if you are a type A planner like me. For example, in February, I outlined all my sermons from March through November, and all of that has been rewritten or shelved or trashed so that I could start over with what God might want to say in spite of my best planning. Which brings us to today's text from the Bible. Moses was not seeking God. He was not at church. He had no religious credentials. In fact, he was a man who was on the wanted list. In order to flee capture back in his hometown in Egypt, Moses escaped to Mount Horeb, where he worked as a shepherd. And while he is just minding his own business and tending the flocks, he sees a burning bush out of the corner of his eye. When God notices that Moses turns aside to see, then God strikes up a conversation with Moses. God has big plans for Moses, but eight times 
Moses resists God's ideas, offers excuses, explains politely that God has come to the wrong person. But God persists. And here is how God pitches the case. I have observed the misery of my people. I have heard their cry, and I know their sufferings. God sees what Moses himself knows but does not want to see. God sees a system of injustice. Moses had been a victim of the system in Egypt when Moses was a baby. His mother worried that he would be hurt because he was the wrong race, so she hid him in a basket in the bulrushes. And then when he became an adult, Moses stood up against the Egyptian taskmasters, which is why he had to run and hide in isolation. Moses has turned away from the pain that God speaks about. And God asks Moses to go back and confront not only the system of pain and oppression in Egypt, but to go directly to Pharaoh to set the people free. God doesn't say that the people of Egypt are bad people. God says the system of oppression is entrapping the people. God says, I will bring them out into a land of milk and honey, a place of opportunity and hope. I studied this passage on Monday night with a group of young women in the church, and I asked them, what would you suggest as a sermon title? And they said, how about... I lit a bush on fire, what else do you want? God tries to get Moses to see what God sees. And you and I know a few things about how difficult it is as a human being to really see, to see life from God's angle. I bet you have noticed this past week that we can look at the same events in the news and not see the same thing. My son, who is 24, sees the events unfolding across the cities in America very differently than do my parents who are in their 80s. But let me confess the blinders that I have worn. My parents grew up poor, but after working their way through college, established a life of plenty that included luxuries like cruises in the Bahamas and the ability to send one's kids to college without borrowing money. I never felt we were rich, but I never worried about food, shelter, or clothing. So the narrative that I grew up with was that if you work hard, you can get ahead. Only in the last few years did I begin to understand that one way my family grew their assets was through real estate. They bought their first house just out of college, and after it had increased in value, they bought another. And each time they did so, their nest egg grew. But if they had been black, they wouldn't have been able to do that because they either wouldn't have qualified for the home loans or they wouldn't have been able to move into the neighborhoods that were increasing in value. For example, 
Here in Kansas City, between 1934 and 1962, the Federal Housing Authority backed mortgages for more than 77,000 homes. And less than 1% of those loans went to black people. And so generational poverty was passed down to people of my age whose parents didn't profit from the real estate market, a market that they were legally shut out of based on their skin color. But let's take a more recent example of my own ability, inability to see. When I was in graduate school, one of my best friends got married. A group of students flew to Orlando to celebrate the wedding of John and Cheryl. There would be days of Southern-style parties leading up to the wedding. And the first night we were there, there was a party that, well, it seemed kind of unorganized and chaotic. Like, where do you stand? and Where do you get your food? And finally, Cheryl, the bride, explained to me that at the last minute, they had to move the party to a different location. Why, I asked. And then she rolled her eyes and whispered, we didn't know Rodney was coming prior to the wedding. We thought he was coming only for the ceremony. Rodney was a groomsman, and Rodney was black. And the party was supposed to be at a country club that didn't allow people of color unless they were serving the food and the drinks. But let's fast forward to today, because after all, that wedding, that was 30 years ago. This week, I read a story by Lori Hutcherson. Lori described her first date with her husband. When she got into his car, she noticed that there was a package of baby wipes on the floorboard. He looked at her and said, I don't have kids. I just use those wipes to clean up spills in the car. And then she turned around and looked out the back window of the car, and she saw a teddy bear in the back window. And she looked back at him, and he said, I leave work late at night, and I drive this fancy car, and so the cops often pull me over for th thinking that, well, I must be a drug dealer or must be driving a stolen car. And so I put that teddy bear there because a friend of mine who's a cop suggested it. He said that it helps the cops think of me as a family man, and then they're less likely to pull me over for no reason when they see the teddy bear in the window. I have observed the misery of my people, says God. But I, like Moses, do not always see the misery, the oppression. Some folks have seen it for a long time. William Sloan Coffin, chaplain at Yale and the famous preacher of Riverside Church in New York City, wrote in his 1993 book, Racism is a congenital deformity in our body politic. In the scripture, God asks Moses to do what Moses knows he cannot do. Go and speak to the system. Stand up face to face to Pharaoh. Change the system. Lead the people out of bondage into a free life where milk and honey are tasted by all of God's children. Why didn't God do the work? Instead, God depends on Moses to do it. 
God chooses Moses as a partner in the healing of the world. God's best efforts, says one biblical scholar, God's best efforts do not meet with instant success. It takes a long time, but eventually Moses leads the people out of bondage in Egypt, across the Red Sea, towards the promised land. Moses recruited others to help. Aaron became the spokesperson when Moses felt inadequate to speak. But Moses and Aaron and others partnered with God. Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall addressed the nation once on the 4th of July. He said, we must dissent from the indifference. We must dissent from the apathy. We must dissent from the fear, the hatred, and the mistrust. We must dissent because America can do better because America has no choice but to do better. How did God convince them? How did God convince them to see and to act? God said, I will go with you. That's it. No magic, no blueprint. God said, I will go with you. One scholar said it like this. Ultimately, this call really isn't about who Moses is. It is about who is with Moses. Sometimes going with is all we need. Chris Coons of Delaware graduated from Yale Law and Yale Divinity School in the same year. A few months ago, Senator Chris Coons shared a story about how his own life of prayer and faith was really born. He recalled growing up with parents who were very involved in the church. One day at church, the minister said that they should do as Jesus had called them to do and that they should visit the prisoners. His dad took it seriously. His dad went to the prison with a group of folks from the church and met a man named Paul who was serving a life sentence. Paul would often visit their home when he was on furlough and they became close and would take Paul along with them on hiking and fishing trips. And Paul would attend church with them and do chores with them around the house. But the time came when Chris and his family were to move away to another city. And it was going to be their last weekend to have Paul leave the prison and visit with them. They were packing to move, and so they had a garage sale, and Paul helped by tending the cash register. And the next day, they got up and went to church, and then Paul went out for the last time to take a walk in the woods behind the house. And it was time to take him back to the prison. Chris went out in the back to find him, but he wasn't there. He had escaped. Chris ran back in the house and told his dad, who quickly ran to the guest room, and there was the cigar box with all the money from the garage sale. Paul made it to the next state, but was then captured and returned to jail. 
And years later, Chris visited Paul in prison. I have to ask, why did you leave behind the money? Because, said Paul, your dad and your family were the only people who ever showed me any kindness. Going with. Going alongside, it is enough. It is enough to change the world.